You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. But I also think the Sixers have a good team and we'll have a successful season. Um, maybe make it to the title game. I believe that. The team is finally bearing fruit. We've trusted the process that worked. Do you know what the process is? I'm not going to go into too many details here. By the way, when I share something about sports, um, I'm not necessarily trying to get... I'm not trying to relate to you. I'm trying to help you relate to me. So that's, that's, that's what's happening here. You're getting to know who I am here. You know, so this isn't like some, something I think is universally accessible. This is, this, is, this, is, this is like my personal story. Does that make sense? Anyway, here's how the process went down. The former general manager, Sam Hinkie, employed a, a, a strategy to collect a lot of assets so that his team could uh, construct a, a, a winning squad. And this, this process involved some controversy. Notably, it appeared like he intentionally lost games in order to collect higher draft picks. So the worse you are, the better pick you get. When the league got, got word of, like heard about what was happening, or at least realized what was happening, it caused some controversy. They were frustrated, right? They're trying to put a good product on the floor, and the team is, is intentionally losing, which doesn't make for a good TV. It really wasn't fun to watch them during this period because they would put teams on the floor that they thought would lose. So they weren't like doing much more than just putting non-competitive teams on the floor. So no one wants to watch their team lose, and so eventually the uh, eventually the league, I think, pressured the Sixers to let go of San Diego. So Sam Hankey is no longer with the organization, but we're bearing the, the fruit of his uh, sacrifice, if you will. Now, the reason this comes to mind is because the slogan that surrounded Sam Hankey after the, the late Sam Hankey, he's not dead, but he's not a sister anymore, was Sam Hankey uh, died for our sins. That's, that's, that's how people felt. He made a selfless sacrifice, and now we're the, uh, benef- we're, we, we're the uh, uh, we receive the, uh, the benefit of this. Um, and the main reason I bring this up is because there's a culturally understood idea, I think to an extent, if this meme has any uh, indication, about Jesus dying for our sins. So that, 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 that makes the meme relatable because in our world, there's this idea that Jesus died for our sins, but it's, it's a hard idea to understand. And so despite hearing it a lot, and the only piece of data that I have that this is common is this meme, so maybe it's less common than I think. But the question I want to work up tonight is, did Jesus have to die for our sins? So we're answering questions that people ask us. Someone asked us this one, and I want to work with it tonight. It's a tricky question because it has the word have. Did Jesus need to die for my sins? Does God need to do anything? And if God needs to do something, what does that mean about God? Um, and for, for many people, a central aspect of their theology is that God is only beholden to God's self. God doesn't have to do anything. God's free. And the freedom, that freedom is given to us too. We don't have to do anything either by extension of how we were created in a, um, also in the way the person of Jesus Christ helps us become one with God. We are also free. Nevertheless, even though God doesn't have to do anything, God's nature 
reflects God's will. What does that mean? God's being determines God's actions. What God does is based on who God is. So, God is only constrained to be like God. So the question really is more about whether it is in God's nature to die for our sins. And I think it's, it's, it's in God's nature to love us and to save us. And I think that's part of who God is. God is loving. God loves us because part of God's character is to love. It's not an obligation imposed upon God from an outside source. And part of God's love is wanting to commune and be influenced by God's creation, creatures like us. And so, part of God's nature is also to be compelled by those who love God too. So the question that follows is, is the best way for God to love us to die for us? And what does that mean to die for us? I don't want to wax philosophical too much about this, because I think even if I were to answer that question affirmatively, yes, the best way that God loves us is to die for us, I don't think that's that satisfying. This framework isn't very satisfying either. And part of the problem is, it's abstract. It lives up here. It doesn't live in our body, you know. And, 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 and for people that have been influenced by European philosophy, where they told us for centuries, we know we are something because we think, it's hard to be something besides a thought. Remember, you know, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And so the whole be sense of being is about what we're thinking. But there's more to what we're doing together than just our thought. And so the philosophical conversation can be fun, but it's a little distancing. So I want to shift the discussion from the nature of God to the composition of God's being, which is above my pay grade and really above any human pay grade, and more into the question of why God died and what that means for us. The beauty of this question is that it causes us to think about what I would consider to be the most unique aspect of our tradition of Christianity that the God we follow, embodied in the person of Jesus Christ, dies. And God doesn't just die, God dies on the cross. God is crucified. God is lynched. Christianity itself is distinguished from other contemporary faiths insofar as the God we worship was the one that was crucified. It's a big deal, right? Paul reminds the Jewish people that he's writing to in Galatians that being hung up on a cross at all is a curse. God is cursed. God is shamed. There is a sort of a godlessness to the crucifixion. It's not fit for God. There's a sort of a, it's, it's an irreligious thing. We've kind of removed ourselves from it, but at the heart of it, the gruesome, brutal, shameful, Roman crucifixion is no way for a God to die. Paul says this to the Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is the one who hangs on the tree, referring to a, an old law in Deuteronomy that prevents you from keeping a dead body on a tree for too long hung on a pole for too long. 
this image right next to it, stained glass gift from the people of Wales to the 16th Street Baptist Church. Maybe you're familiar with the story. They got this gift after the church was bombed in a terrorist attack that killed four little black girls dressed in their Sunday best. It was marked. It marked a shift in the civil rights movement in the United States. And this inscription at the bottom that says, you do it to me, is a reminder of Jesus' powerful words in Matthew 25, where he says, what you do to the least of these, you do unto me. And the statement is simple here. When you terrorize the least of these, you terrorize God. The white supremacists who performed this attack on September 15, 1963, killed God again. That's what we're talking about. century theologian Jürgen, uh, I should say Jürgen with a G, Jürgen Moltmann says, to the humanism of antiquity, to how we thought about people a long time ago, the, crucif the crucified Christ was an embarrassment. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, infamous Nazi resistor, just eight months before his execution, before, before Hitler killed him, says, God lets himself be pushed out of this world onto the cross. Christ is weak and powerless in the world, and that is precisely the way, the only way in which he is with us and helps us. In weakness, in powerlessness, God identifies with us. The shame of the crucifixion, then, is the final way Jesus, God incarnate, identifies with us. God endures a shameful death to identify and connect with us. We don't have a lot of expressions like this, right? It's reminiscent of the lynchings of the Jim Crow South. Public embarrassing uh, spectacles of death, of how horrible people can be to one another. Someone compared it to the, the brutal murder of Matthew Shepard. Are you familiar with this story? A gay college student who was beat up by two men who left to hang on a fence, freezing to death, dying in a hospital five days later, never to regain consciousness. That's the crucifixion. That's what we're talking about. That's what happened to God. God identifies with us when we suffer the most in the crucifixion, right? He identifies with us because he suffered, right? So he identifies with uh, Trayvon Martin. Michael Brown, Eric Garner, right? Eric Garner, this dramatic scene when he says, I can't breathe, and you remember. And Jesus says the same thing as he dies from uh, uh, a suffocation on the cross, right? There's something palpably evil in the world. And that's what, that's what, the, that's what our God went through. God goes to such great lengths to love and relate and connect if God doesn't suffer, God doesn't relate. The incarnation is not complete without the crucifixion. God identifies with us in our suffering when God dies. And it's the ultimate display of empathy and understanding. God brings upon God's self the greatest shame. That's why Paul has to tell the, the, the Romans as he opens up his letter to them, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because you should be. Because this happened. This is how it's supposed to happen. Especially to a God who's demonstrated so much power 
in authority over other gods in the Old Testament, right? This big display of Israel's power in their God who delivers them time and again. Now this God is dead. No, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And he does the same thing, right? At this moment of great power when God could have triumphed, God dies. It's an irreligious moment. It's a, it's a, it's a backwards moment. It's an upside down moment. God does the, Paul says the same thing as he opens up 1 Corinthians, opening up his letter with a similar statement, this time addressing the whole world, Jews and Gentiles. The crucifixion is absurd and it's weak, right? A stumbling block for Jews, foolishness for Gentiles. It's not a compelling argument. It's not made to convince you to follow God. God died. That's the basis of our faith. The crucifixion completes then the recapitulation of our life. Jesus lives our lives and dies, and through that redoing of our life saves us. The fullness of Jesus' humanity is completed by his death and acts like a bridge between us and God. That's just one way to imagine the necessity of the cross. <clears throat> it comes from the Apostolic Fathers in the 2nd and 3rd century. Peter Abelard developed it further. Christ the exemplar. But there are more. I'm going to give you two more ideas about this. First one is from a guy named Anselm of Canterbury. He was a reluctant bishop of Canterbury. One of the most influential and important figures of Christian history. And he writes about why Jesus died in this amazing uh, work that he has, Cur Deus Homo, which means why God man, why Jesus. In his story, his theory for why Jesus needed to die by people like me is often depicted negatively. But I want to give Anselm another chance today. Anselm posits that the death of Jesus satisfies God. Anselm argues Sin against an infinite God is infinitely guilty and can be atoned for only by an infinite satisfaction. There needs to be a God-man. One of the reasons people don't like this theory of atonement is because it feels too formulaic, it feels too scientific, it feels too logical. And then even more negatively, it feels futile, it feels sadistic, it feels vengeful. It feels violent. But this brings into question the, 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 the ideas of sin and justice. Look around the world right now. Something's wrong. There are a lot of things that are wrong with the world. And we have to be serious about that something wrong and serious about the justice that follows. If you're blind to the evil or you don't see a need for justice, maybe Jesus wouldn't need to have died at all. But I think that something wrong is evident in the world, and I'm reminded of it every day, all the time. Not just in my interpersonal interactions, but also in the events of the world that surround me. Anselm says that something wrong wholly ruins, wholly ruins our relationship with God. If we admit that our behavior, the behavior that we're complicit in just by virtue of living in this earth, and our individual behavior has wronged others and thus wronged God, we face problems because we can't just restore it on our own. We need help to do it. 
It's not just within our personal ability to restore the world. We can't do it. But, so we're needy. But if you don't want to restore the world, if you don't want to make it better, you're unjust. So you're needy or unjust. Pick your poison. This is Anselm's argument. And here's the thing. God's compassion alone, God's love alone, doesn't make injustice go away. Your compassion alone doesn't make injustice go away. Reparations need to be paid. Rectification must be had. Sometimes we say that the, the, the righteousness of God needs to be honored. That word righteousness can be translated as justice or rectification. The justice of God. And I think we have an idea of this particularly now because we know in the American context there are societal sins that can't be forgiven on their own. They can't just be forgiven. Payment must be made. And so Anselm argues it's necessary for God to save us as a, uh, and, and restore us, not as a matter of outside criteria, but of who God is. God can save us alone because the weight of evil is so great. God must act and there's nothing we can do individually to fully restore our relationship. That it's not possible for justice to occur unless there's a price paid. And in this case, a, a price that is greater than all the universe besides God. And that's why the God-man is necessary. A human must make payment, but no human can apart from God. And so now we need the incarnate God, the God-man, the God-human. And so it's important for us not to, in this moment, not to separate God and Jesus or the Father and the Son. Sometimes we hear about the Father pouring out uh, wrath onto the Son. I think that separates the Father and the Son too much. I think God is enduring wrath. God is enduring evil. God is enduring punishment as one singular unit. And I hope we can cooperate with God in that sort of worldwide liberation that undoes the evils of the world that seem to overwhelm us. It's better for us if we imagine Anselm's work here more as a story than a theory. And by the way, the bulk of this work is a dialogue between two people, between Anselm and, uh, and uh, Basel. So there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's even a dialogue happening in the story. It doesn't explain God. It tells a story about God one that was particularly relevant to the feudalistic people that uh, it was delivered to, but also one that can be relevant for us today as we think about reparations for sin against sin. Some of them had to be paid. Working with this idea is another theory. It comes from Gustav um, called Christus Victor or Christ the Victor. He tells that in the death and subsequent resurrection, yes, the resurrection is a part of this, Jesus endures the worst of what the world has to offer, the worst consequence of evil, and defeats death. Rather than payment for justice, Jesus is fighting a war against evil on our behalf, defeating it once and for all. He is defeating the, the he is fighting an apocalyptic end of the world war that changes the course of history. He's fighting powers and principalities. The wrath of God here isn't poured out against Jesus, like some reformers will later interpret Anselm. It's poured out onto death. Put another way, God kills death. 
the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, right? That passage from Corinthians and also the uh, epitaph on Lily Potter's gravestone, right? Hey, there's a Bible in Harry Potter in case any fundamentalist tells him otherwise. Um, the cross accomplishes that. I like, I, I, I like to hold all the viewpoints together. We had Abelard earlier and Anselm and all those views work together. Because I love Christos Victor. I love Christ the Victor. I love this apocalyptic war that Jesus is fighting that saves me, right? Oh, death, where is your sting? We'll sing on Lemon Hill in a, in a few months here, right? That, that's, that's liberating. It exposes the evil of the world for what it is and tells us how it is undone by God. But the, and there, is, there, there are some limitations to this theory that, that is so uh, comforting to me. I think a weakness of it is that it kind of, this, this all happens above us, doesn't it? This, all this, this big cosmic fight happening is above our heads as humans. In a sort of spiritual battlefield. It doesn't immediately address the ethical consequences of our actions. It kind of exonerates all of us. It doesn't really address when we are complicit in the death that Jesus defeats. So he might defeat the death that racism causes, but it, he, but it doesn't interrogate the fact that we're often complicit in that evil. And so for victims of sin, it's not, it doesn't offer them justice. For the victims of the uh, bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, it doesn't offer them the same kind of reparations. Does that make sense? So there's some weakness to it, right? The devil didn't just make you do it. You did it. We did it. We did something wrong. Are we responsible for all the evil in the world? No. And so Anselm alone, if, if, you, if you reduce Anselm to an individual transaction between you and God, God forgiving you of your sins by yourself, it is insufficient. If it's a bigger, a bigger reparation, a bigger payment, it starts to work more. So let's hold the ideas together. It works if they cooperate with Anselm. I'll give you one more quote from J. Denny Weaver. This is 2015, 16. Brand new book, essentially. Still working on why the cross matters. Jaden Weaver is an Anabaptist guy like me and like us. And so he says, we, 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 we follow, we all follow Jesus as we suffer for justice. Identifying with following and imitate or imitating Jesus may indeed be costly. It may indeed entail suffering and even death. But that suffering is not suffering that is salvific in and of itself. And it is not a suffering whose origin or object is God or happens in some way. God needs it without compelling it. This is suffering that is a byproduct of opposing evil. As Jesus' suffering and death was the result of opposing evil. He takes it out of the theoretical framework and said, God fought evil. Jesus lived a life that resulted in his death. That invariably when you can from the powers to God. That's what you do, and that's what Jesus did. And then he defeated death and resurrection. He's similar Christus Victor idea, but it's another one to add to the mix, especially if you're uncomfortable with the idea of God sanctioning the death, the death of Jesus. I kind of see it as a self-sacrifice. God sanctions God's own death. So I keep them together, Jesus and God. Earlier I said Jesus suffered to relate to but he suffered to show us, too, the cost of following him. And he suffers because reparations must follow injustice.
because evil is in the world. Because the wrongness in the world needs to be made right. Something is wrong in the world and it must be made right. This is the big plan for how it's going to be made right. This is God's big play in the whole universe. There's so much more we could say, but I'll leave you with a Fleming Rutledge, one of my favorite people, an Anglican priest. She, start, she ends her book with this uh, quote from Rock of Ages Cleft for Me, which is not a popular number in Circle of Hope, but there's no reason it shouldn't be. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. This is what's happening on Golgotha, that hill that Jesus dies on. All the manifold biblical images with their richness and complexity and depth come together as one to say, and I'm going to read this litany that she writes. Pick your favorite one. Pick the one that works with you. That's why the cornucopia is there. A lot of different images that we can pick from all over the Bible. The righteousness of God is revealed in the cross of Christ. The precious blood of the Son of God is the perfect sacrifice for sin. The ransom is paid to deliver the captives. The gates of hell are stormed. The Red Sea is crossed and the enemy drowned. God's judgment has been executed upon sin. The disobedience of Adam is recapitulated in the obedience of Christ. A new creation is coming into being. Those who put their trust in Christ are incorporated into his life. The kingdoms of this present evil age are passing away, and the promised kingdom of God is manifest not in triumphalist crusades, not in triumphalist crusades, not in the finals of the church and its conquest, but in the cruciform witness of the church. Let's read this poem out loud together as we end. Awake, arise, lift up your voice, let Eastern music swell. We rejoice in Christ again, rejoice, and on his praises dwell. Oh, what a gladness and surprise! The saints their Savior greet. No longer trust their ears and eyes and by his hands and feet. Those hands of liberal love indeed in infinite degree. Those feet still free to move and bleed for millions and greed. Let's say a prayer and then do some talk about it, shall we? Thank you, Lord, for giving us uh, an opportunity to live to model the uh, radical, self-sacrificing love that you exhibited and to keep being crucified in the midst of the world. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.